If you're interested in listening ad-free, go to patreon.com slash the SCP experience. There you can enjoy my ad-free podcast and never have to listen to ads again. That's patreon.com slash the SCP experience. Now time for the story. Doc, you in here? I call. It's late, and the other staff members who work at the medical examiner's office have all gone home for the day. It's the only way Dr. Jessup, the medical examiner, would let me in to see my friend's body. But now I can't find him. I wander around for a minute, trying to locate the exam area, or whatever they call the room where post-mortem exams are done. Finally, I come across two scuffed gray doors with plastic windows set in them. I look through the windows, but they're so clouded and scuffed that I can't see anything but vague shapes. So I push through. Kendrick's body is on an exam table. His chest opened up, ribcage folded out. It strikes me how easy it is to forget we're just meat and bones and brains. As I push down my revulsion and move forward, I catch a glimpse of blood on the floor. I round the table and see Doc Jessup lying on the floor between a countertop and the exam table. A pool of blood shines in the harsh light from over the exam table. Doc, I say, stepping forward. But I don't touch him. I know instinctively that he's dead. There's nothing I can do for him. So I step back, glancing briefly at Kendrick's open chest cavity as I move. I stop, something in the back of my mind telling me to look again, telling me that something's not right. It is, after all, why I came here, to try and figure out what the hell is happening to my friends. I look into his chest cavity again, and what I see there sends me running out of the building. As I jump into my car, I remember Kendrick complaining of chest pains a week earlier. I also remember that he didn't seek treatment and they went away after a few days or so. But then he dropped dead yesterday, just like that. And his best friend and roommate, Cameron, barely seemed to notice. In fact, he had been acting downright strange. The two are connected somehow. I just don't know how. As I drive out to Cameron's house, I call 911 and tell them to get over to the medical examiner's office. Then I hang up. I can't be caught up in all their questions right now. I need to get to Cameron and convince him to go to the hospital. Cameron lives in a house on the outskirts of our small town. Kendrick lived there until he died yesterday. In fact, I used to live in the house with them until I got tired of the constant partying and drinking and moved to town. It was fun while it lasted, but I didn't want to live that way forever, so I got out. But Cameron and Kendrick stayed. I hang a right onto the winding driveway, going as fast as I can. I pull up, seeing Cameron's Toyota truck and Kendrick's old Dodge sedan. But there's another car here, one that I recognize. It belongs to Shauna, a girl we all went to high school with. At first, it gives me comfort, knowing that someone else is here. But her presence actually brings up more questions about Cameron's strange behavior. I park my car next to Shauna's and jump out. The house doesn't have any immediate neighbors and it's surrounded by a cocoon of trees. This was part of the reason we were attracted to the house in the first place. No neighbors to piss off with late night parties. The blurry memories of all the drunken times, good and bad, seem like a lifetime away. The house is eerily quiet at first, but as I approach the front door, 
It flies open and out comes Shauna. Your friend is being a real prick, she says, storming past me. Fucking testosterone overload. I say nothing, watching her in shocked silence as she gets in her car to leave. At least Cameron's still alive, I think as I head inside. Cameron's in the kitchen, chowing down on a massive sandwich. He's wearing a baggy sweatshirt and jeans, even though it's summer and the house is warm. What was all that about? I ask him, unsure how to approach the subject of a hospital visit with him. What? He says, his eyes sleepy with apparent euphoria. That's another thing that's changed, making me wonder if he's doing opioids or something. Shauna, I say. As long as I can remember, you couldn't stand her. Now she's over here several times a week for the past month, and she's here again right after Kendrick drops dead in the fucking living room? What the hell is going on? Cameron shrugs his broad shoulders, chewing another bite of his sandwich. People change, man. The guy's got needs, you know? Besides, what am I supposed to do about Kendrick's death? Sucks, but he's gone and we're still here. Listen, man, I say, shaking my head. Something weird is going on, and I'm worried that whatever killed Kendrick is going to kill you. Please, just come with me to get checked out at the hospital. Man, you know I can't afford that, Kendrick says, walking past me out of the kitchen. I'll pay for it if that's what it'll take. Please, Cam, just come get checked out. I feel fine. I don't need to see a doctor. Weren't you complaining of chest pains a couple of weeks ago, just like Kendrick was before he died? It was about a week after you got back from that trip to South America. I remember, but it passed. I'm fine, never felt better. Jesus Christ, Cam, I saw what killed Kendrick. I went to the medical examiner's office and saw inside his chest. There was something sticking out of his fucking heart. Cameron stops and turns toward me. What do you mean, sticking out of his heart? What was it? I don't know. It looked like insect legs or something. Insect legs? Dude, maybe you're the one that needs to get checked out, Cameron says. I bet it was some kind of instrument that the coroner uses or something. Did they tell you what his cause of death was? No, the doctor was dead, I say. I think he saw what was sticking out of Kendrick's heart and fainted or had a heart attack or something. It looked like he fell back and hit his head on the countertop. Damn, sucks for him. Cameron turns back around and heads past the living room and down the hallway toward the bedrooms. I watch him go. And just as he turns into his bedroom, I see something strange. It's a twitch, something moving underneath the sweatshirt, something on his back. I shake it off, thinking he moved his arm or something, causing the fabric of the sweatshirt to shift. Sitting down on the couch in the living room, I think of what to do next. If Cameron refuses to get help, there's not much I can do. My phone buzzes in my pocket and I dig it out and answer it. It's a deputy from the sheriff's department. I knew this was coming as soon as I called 911 earlier. He wants me to come in and have a chat. So I do. Maybe they can tell me something about the strange thing or things I saw protruding from Kendrick's heart. By the time I get home from the sheriff's office, I'm exhausted and I don't know any more than I did when I walked into the medical examiner's office hours earlier. They refused to tell me anything about the ongoing investigation and just wanted to know why I had been there and what I saw. 
they tried to play the whole thing off as a misunderstanding, insisting that I imagined what I saw in Kendrick's chest. But I got the feeling they had no idea what it was either and were trying to buy time. I eat a quick dinner and go to bed, hoping that I'll actually be able to do something to help my friend in the morning. After a night of restless sleep, I wake up to a phone call from Cameron. Hello? I say. Something's wrong, Cameron says. You're right. Something's wrong with me. I need to go to the emergency room. I can't see, Evan. I can't see anything. Okay, hang in there. I'm coming over. I arrive at the house less than 15 minutes after I get the call. I walk through the door calling for Cameron. Where are you, Cam? I'm back here, a weak voice says. In my room. I run back and find Cameron sitting on the floor, propped against his bed, looking pale and sickly. He's still wearing the sweatshirt and jeans from yesterday. His eyes are closed. And if it weren't for the words he spoke, I might have mistaken him for dead. Can you stand up? I ask, kneeling next to him. No, he says, his eyelids opening to reveal completely clouded eyes. I jerk back from him, scared by the lack of visible irises and pupils. Come on, let's get you up, I say, recovering. I grab his right hand and try to pull him up, but his body is stiff and heavy. No, he says again, and his eyes close. Come on, get up, Cam. I yank his arm, but he's just too heavy for me to get him out to the car without assistance. I kneel next to him again. Cam, Cam, please try to get up. He makes no move. I reach out and touch his neck, feeling for a pulse. There's not one. He's dead. I sit for a long moment, looking at my friend, wishing I did more to help him. I stand up and take my phone out of my pocket to call 911 for the second time in as many days. Just as I press the nine, Cameron moves. He falls away from the bed, landing on his face. I stare down at him, sure that he couldn't have just fallen over like that. Movement from his back under the sweatshirt causes me to inhale sharply, stepping back until I meet the wall. Several bulges push up and out against the sweatshirt, stretching the fabric until it rips. Eight long, hairy legs extend out, touching the floor tentatively at first. Once all of them are down, they press against the floor, easily lifting Cameron's body off the ground, although his feet and legs hang down. I want to scream to wake up from this nightmare. My life has suddenly turned into a horror movie and my mind recoils from what I'm seeing, unable to believe it. Cameron's head comes up, his eyes open again, but still cloudy. His knees bend, his feet coming up to press against the ground. His hands do the same making it look like he's crouching on all fours, ready to pounce. I know he's dead. I know that the creature inside him has taken over his body, but it doesn't make it any easier to see him like this. The spider creature scrambles toward me, its legs and Cameron's limbs pushing it along. I jump into the hallway and run toward the front door, my only thought to make it to the safety of my car. The creature follows, moving incredibly fast, just a few feet behind me. I yank the front door open, smashing it into the rearing creature. I get out the door and jump down the front steps, then sprint to my car. As I fumble with my keys, I look up, expecting to see the creature scurrying along toward me, but I don't see it. As I put the key into my door to unlock it, I sense movement to my left. 
The creature darts out from underneath Cameron's truck, jumping at me. I pull the door open, but the creature slams into it, shutting it and hitting me on the left side with one of its legs. I bounce off the car, somehow keeping to my feet as I run back toward the house. Spotting the little area in the front yard where there's a rusty axe near a wood pile, I decide to run for the weapon. I can hear the scurrying creature just behind me as I swipe up the axe and swing it wildly around in a desperate attempt to fend it off. The blade smashes through one of the spider legs, severing it and causing a strange sound to erupt from Cameron's mouth. The creature rears up, reaching Cameron's arms out for me. I swing the axe again, hitting Cameron's left arm at the elbow, snapping the joint. But his right hand and one of the other spider legs hit me, knocking me off balance. I stumble, turning away as my momentum carries me. I manage to keep my feet again, but I have no time to turn around before the creature is on my back three hairy legs and one of Cameron's arms wrapping around my body. Thrusting my arms out to keep the weapon in use, I flip the axe blade around as the legs start to squeeze me, digging into me, trying to crush me or pierce my skin, or both. I throw my arms up over my head, swinging the axe as if I'm trying to hit myself in the back with it. Bending my elbows as my shoulders reach their maximum range of motion, I slam the axe blade into the creature's back. Another strange sound escapes Cameron's lungs a sound akin to screaming, and the creature retreats. I turn around to see the axe sticking up from the middle of Cameron's back. The creature stumbles around drunkenly. I run up and grab the axe handle, yanking it out of my friend's back. Then I bring it down again while the creature is still stunned, aiming for the places where the legs come out of his back. Chopping, chopping, I sever all the legs as blood spurts out and the creature convulses. Soon enough, the only movement is from the severed legs, which twitch weakly on the grass. I check to make sure that no blood got in my mouth. Most of it splashed on my shirt and pants. I don't think that the creature ever pierced my skin, which is a good thing. I keep the ax with me as I run to my car. I snag the keys out of the door and start it up, heading back into town with the ax in my passenger side footwell. Kendrick is the lucky one, I now think. The thing grew into his heart instead of out his back, killing him when it got big enough. But what about other people? How many others did Cameron infect? Am I infected? I pull up in front of Shauna's house after 10 minutes, then run up to her door. Have you been having chest pains? I say as soon as Shauna opens the door. What happened to you? Is that blood? She says, eyes wide. Answer the question, chest pains? How did you know that? She says. Take off your shirt, I say. What? Evan, I think you need to leave, she says, going to shut the door. I shove it open, forcing my way inside. I grab Shauna and turn her around while she screams and fights me. But she's just a little thing, and it's not hard for me to yank up the back of her shirt. There, in her mid-back, coming out of an inflamed-looking wound, are eight little spider legs. SCP-940 is a parasitoid organism that begins life as an egg and requires a host body to mature into adulthood. Infection occurs following exposure to body fluids containing SCP-940 eggs. During the initial weeks after infection, the eggs grow into larvae in the host's bloodstream. The first SCP-940 larva to hatch will begin cannibalizing any unhatched eggs in order to ensure only one larva develops into an adult within a given host. Once done, the soul larva migrates to fuse itself with the host's central nervous system. 
This is when many hosts die of complications, such as heart failure. If the host lives past the three-week mark, SCP-940 begins to alter serotonin and dopamine levels in the host's brain, causing them to experience feelings of happiness and well-being. The legs of the new larva, now fed by the host's circulatory system, begin to penetrate the skin of the host's back. Hosts typically do not report any discomfort or alarm at this, and rarely seek treatment. Approximately five weeks after initial infection, SCP-940 reaches full size and maturity. Hosts are secretive about their condition during this time. A form of rudimentary communication is believed to occur between SCP-940 and its host. These adult specimens often retract their legs, folding them flat against the host's back, allowing them to be concealed with relative ease by clothing. Additionally, SCP-940 triggers an increase in the levels of testosterone in the host's body, leading to increased libido, which facilitates the infection of new hosts. All infected individuals that have survived six weeks of infection experience loss of a sense of individuality, loss of eyesight, and bouts of catatonia and catalepsy. Death is typically due to aneurysm caused by skyrocketing blood pressure, heart or kidney failure, or exsanguination. When the host biologically dies, SCP-940 will continue to animate the corpse by means of its limbs, entering a berserk state. In this state, SCP-940 will attempt to reproduce and infect with no regard for concealment, generally inflicting physical violence and blood transmission to do so. This state can last from one to three days before SCP-940 expires. <laughs>